This morning's scripture is from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your presence here with us now. Lord, as we just sang, you've set us free. We are your children. Your love is quite amazing. I pray that this morning, in our time together, that your Holy Spirit would convey your great love to us. May you lift our heads. May you restore our souls. May you renew us. And may we seek you with all that we are. Jesus, during this brief time together now, we ask that we would hear your voice and that you alone would receive all honor and glory, for it's in your name we pray, amen. Now, some of you, I know I may be recalling up a childhood pain for you, and I'm sorry if I'm doing that, but you remember, and I think schools have gotten away from this, but you remember recess if you're my age, probably older, how oftentimes you go out to recess and you play kickball, baseball, some kind of a team-oriented sports activity, and everybody had to line up. And there's two captains, and then the two captains go through the selection process of choosing who's going to be on their teams. You know how it would go. The slow dude gets put on catcher because they can't really do much. The person who can't handle a ball no matter what, stick them out in right field somewhere where they'll do the least amount of damage. And and so as it goes, you're waiting in line, you're waiting for your name to be called, and and it gets more dehumanizing the longer it proceeds. At some point, it switches from calling people by name, you on my team, to just you two, all right, then I'll take you two. You two, I'll take you two. And it, it gets like that. And then, and then if you're bottom of the barrel and you're you know, the kid at kickball who just can't kick the ball and this is you, what happens is it becomes so dehumanizing in that moment that now there's this bartering. Well, if I have to take Rick, then you have to take Dave. You know, it, it, that's how it goes. So it's, it's like you're, you're, you're kind of doing, if I'm forced, then you've got to take this guy. For me, I was always kind of middle of the pack, you know. Uh, I wasn't last, but I wasn't top tier either. And I can remember as a kid, and, and for some reason, in the elementary school I was in, it was always Stephen and Greg who were the captains. I don't know why. I think it was because Stephen was on Sesame Street when he was little, so he had this privileged status of, he's always a team captain. And I remember just once, if Stephen will look at me and say, Rick, I want you. First, before anyone else, I want you on my team. You're useful to me. Never happened. Now, you know, it was middle of the pack. 
Maybe you feel like you've never been chosen with a lot of enthusiasm by somebody. But did you ever think about the fact that you were so valuable to God that He chose you quite early, before time even began, with enthusiasm, I choose you, Kelly. I choose you, Mike. I want you on my team. You are useful to me. I have a plan. We're going to do something together. You know, during life, the call of the gospel goes out, and in that moment, many of you can remember a time when you heard that voice calling you, come to me, I want you, and you responded. You've been chosen by God with great enthusiasm, and Jesus actually calls us to his team for something far greater than baseball or kickball, and that's what we're going to look at this morning as we walk through these verses of Jesus calling his very first disciples. Now, you'll remember as we go through this gospel of Mark, Mark divides very neatly into two large segments. Chapters 1 to 8 are all about Jesus' identity as king over all things, and Mark chapters 9 through 16 are all about Jesus' purpose in dying on the cross. And so this morning, our passage falls into the first eight chapters, which all of this references Jesus as king over all things. And in Mark's gospel, things are happening very quickly. We read in verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news. So John the Baptist, his mission has come. It's now ended suddenly. Mark's going to come back to this in chapter 6 and tell us you know, more about it. But so John is arrested, put in prison, and now Jesus enters the scene with a different style of mission and a different message. Rather than, like John, just being in the desert and letting people come to him, Jesus went intentionally from place to place sharing the good news of the gospel. Now, if you ask the average Christian, what was Jesus' main message? You're going to hear a lot of different answers, and typically you're going to get a response kind of like this, well, believe in me and be saved, or love God with all that you are and love your neighbor. That's, that's the emphasis of Jesus' message. Those things are, are things he taught, but the core message is about the kingdom of God. Look at verse 15 again. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. These are the very first words we hear of Jesus the Messiah in the book of Mark. And what you see in these very first words is the recurring theme of Jesus' message throughout all of the Gospels. The kingdom of God summarizes all Jesus has come to proclaim and achieve. Now, if you've been here since the beginning of this, you know a little bit about what this is about, but God is bringing His kingdom to earth as He promised. Now, you know this logically. God is the creator of all things, and as the creator of all things, He is the rightful, true King over all things. And yet, Jews understood, while God is the rightful, lawful King over the universe, one, not everyone acknowledges that fact. Two, 
definitely not everyone submits to that fact, and they live lives in contradiction to God's kingship. And so Jews had this understanding that one day, and it's promised throughout the Older Testament, when a Jew heard the kingdom of God, they have different things popping in their mind. One of them is going to be the great day of the Lord. That day, as is often mentioned in the Older Testament, where, and that day, the day of the Lord, referenced the time that God was going to bring His kingdom to the earth. It was a future hope of the Jews when one day everyone's going to truly know who is king. And whether they want to or not, they will submit to and acknowledge He is the king. This was a future hope of the Jews. And so when Jesus enters the scene, here He is with a message I have come to bring the kingdom of God. The kingdom is near. Why is it near? Because I am near to you. One day when that rule of God would be more truly established, Jesus here is saying, here's the day. Here's the day because I bring the kingdom and I am the king of the kingdom. No Jews hearing this would have missed the point. God is about His work of taking control, and He's doing it through the message, the ministry, the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus' words here are just loaded with meaning. We won't have time to get into all of it, but I do want to point out, when He says the time has come, Greek is a fascinating language, and it actually has two different words for time in it. We, We have one, but when the Greeks used the words for time. One was chronos, chronological, chronology, that kind of thing. That word is not here, and that's the word for time that just simply means the passing of days one after another, hours one after another, the ticking of the clock. Chronos. Jesus uses a very different word, kairos. And we don't have an, an equivalent word in English for it. One commentator said the closest you can really come to it is the difference between the word historical and historic. Everything in history is historical, technically, but not everything is historic. Because in Greek, to use the word that Jesus used here, kairos, for time, it means something is happening right now that everything afterwards is going to be changed because of it. This is so significant, so life-altering, that it completely changes the fabric of time as it will come. You see, what Jesus is saying is, I'm the king bringing the kingdom now, and everything's going to be different afterwards. It's a chirotic event. You know, our culture acknowledges this whether we like to or not, because our whole calendar is based off of the birth of Jesus Christ. Whether you grew up learning your calendar as B.C., A.D., or whether you've grown up learning it as B.C.E., C.E., before the Common Era and after the Common Era, or in the Common Era, it doesn't matter. Our whole calendar, the central point on which it swings, is Jesus Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection were chirotic events that changed everything that came afterwards. So Jesus is saying, listen up, 
because the kingdom's here. Something so significant, nothing's going to be the same afterwards. What we have is the king proclaiming the kingdom has come. And so if that's the case, the very proper response is what Jesus says here, repent and believe the good news. And you know, if you've been around, that repent simply means turn around or turn away from your own way of life, your own way of doing things, and turn to something new that God is doing. Now, the reason I share that is because I believe what we have in the verses that follow is a living example of repentance, to turn away, to turn around from something and to something new. That's the rest of the passage. Let me read that to you once again, verses 16 and following. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, if you're like most people, when you think about the disciples, you typically think of the disciples as humble, uneducated men of very simple means. You know, we, we, we really think of them as, you know, maybe they're out there, they're kind of peasants somewhere. We have this low view of them in different ways. And, and you can have this impression, well, of course they're going to follow Jesus because they had nothing better to do in life, Right? If you're thinking they're these humble, poor guys, you know, well, when Jesus calls, of course, they're going to leave their drab, dreary existence to follow something new. That's not the case at all. And if I had more time, I'd flesh this out more, but I'll give you a little sense of this. The Sea of Galilee, where Jesus is, this was the most productive body of water in the world at that time for the fishing industry, the most productive. And the Bible often refers to fishing, but never as a recreational activity like we describe it, usually. Fishing is business. And only the wealthiest of fishermen had hired people working with them. You see where this is going. That means Zebedee, who had his sons in the business, James and John, you'll see in verse 20, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. Right there, Mark's telling us something. Zebedee is among the wealthiest of fishermen in this industry because he has hired people in his boats with him. You realize Simon Peter may have been incredibly wealthy too. Simon and his brother Andrew are in their boat. It doesn't mention hired men with them, but you realize this if you read the Gospels. The Gospels tell us Peter was from a place called Bethsaida, Bethsaida, meaning he had a residence there. But the Bible also tells us that Peter had another home in Capernaum. So Peter has two lakeside homes, one in Bethsaida, one in Capernaum. Peter is doing quite well by worldly standards. These guys aren't losing at life. They're winning if you base life off of finances. Peter was a guy who had 
his own business with Andrew, his brother. They had strong community and family ties. They're doing quite well in life. R.C. Sproul, in talking about this section, he said, you know, we think of the disciples as these poverty-stricken fishermen trying to eke out a living, but these men actually had very lucrative businesses. Now, why do I share that with you? Not just for information's sake. It's because these first disciples could hardly be described as men with no lives. Their lives were just as full as yours and as mine. They were leading very successful lives. And yet, yet, when Jesus summoned them, they jumped at the chance to follow him. It would be like if you had started your own business, were president and CEO, you had a number of employees working with you, say you've got a factory and the machinery is going, profits are up, the graph is, you know, up and to the right constantly for you. And Jesus walks in one day and says, hey, you, Ryan, follow me. And you leave everything, employees, the machines running, your benefits and your 401k, and you follow this guy who just called you. That's what it was like. You see, Mark is trying to get us to see the startling power of this king. The king who's come proclaiming the kingdom, bringing the kingdom, he has startling power. He could walk past people occupied in their day-to-day concerns of their own lives, tell them to drop what they were doing, join his cause, and they did it. Immediately, it says. This is significant to Mark's first eight chapters of the kind of king that Jesus is. Now, we know from the other Gospels, Jesus had met Peter, Andrew, James, and John before, but that does not diminish the power of the king that Mark is depicting here. Because when Jesus was seen by them, he was more compelling than all the other good things in life that they had. So what I want to do in our brief remaining time is kind of unpack what it means when Jesus says, come follow me. You see, every Christian, every single one of us in this room who claims the name of Christ has had to, just like those first disciples from that day to this, make the exact same choice in life, to give up everything and follow Him. So it's really good if we understand what this means to give up everything to follow Him. And I'm going to just lay it out in two big picture ways of thinking about it. You could really do a lot more with this. But the first thing I want you to think about in following Jesus, it means that you accept His authority unconditionally. You see, Jesus is a rabbi unlike any others. Most rabbis let students come to Him, them, Jesus is a rabbi that went out and found students saying, follow me. And for disciples, a disciple following a rabbi, they called him master because that's exactly what he was. And what they did was basically they lived with their master morning, noon, and night. And what they sought to do was observe everything that their master did and said. His word was their authority. His interpretation of Scripture was their authority. His way of doing life became their pattern for doing life. 
If the master had a routine before breakfast, they adopted that routine. They watched as he interacted with various people and how he handled circumstances, and they sought to do the same. Whatever the master said, they obeyed because he was their authority. You see, discipleship, what I'm getting at here, is not a part-time calling on your own terms based off of what you decide is comfortable or convenient for you. The call to follow Christ is full-on giving up everything for the sake of your master. It's not obedience when you feel like it or it's comfortable to you. It's full surrender to Him as your authority, Him as your king. John Stott says it this way, Jesus never lowered His standards or modified His conditions to make His call more readily acceptable. He asked His first disciples, and He has asked every disciple since, to give Him their thoughtful and total commitment. Nothing less than this will do. At its simplest, Christ's call was follow me, and to follow Christ is to renounce all lesser authorities. So, young people, you know what that means. His ethics, if you claim the name of Jesus Christ, He is your King, He is your Master, His ethics trump the ethics of the world. When you're in school, integrity, His ethics trump. Your sexuality, His ethics trump your friends may say, you're crazy, you're nuts. Why would you do that? It's better to get to know someone sexually before you go off and marry them. His ethics. Save yourself. There's a reason for that. And as your king, he has a right to say so. He's your authority. Now, I, I, I don't want to get on this too much, but I believe one of the problems of the church in the United States is that we live ultimately as if we're the authority. And the reason I can say that is because I find myself doing this far too often. We pick and choose how and when we want to follow Jesus. And it's often based off of what's comfortable to us or convenient to us or whatever else we set as the standard. But when we do that, realize what we're doing is, I'm the authority, and Jesus, now you're an add-on to my life. I love how Tim Keller talks about this because oftentimes we make our relationship with Jesus conditional. I'll let you be my king, Jesus, if, and this is what Keller says, if you say, I'll obey you, Jesus, if my career thrives, if my health is good, if my family's together, then the thing that's on the other side of that if, well, that's your real master. That's your real goal. But Jesus will not be a means to an end. He will not be used. If He calls you to follow Him, He must be the goal. Not the blessings in life as you define them. Not give me this many children, give me this much money, give me this much safety. No, no. He is your everything. Remember Jesus' story of the pearl of great price? They found this thing, and what do they do? They go and they sell everything they own to acquire it. Because this 
is more valuable, this is more beautiful, this is more important to them than anything else in life. Jesus is saying, I am that. My kingdom is that for you. That's what it means to follow Him and accept His authority unconditionally. But it doesn't stop there. He goes on, and following Jesus is not ultimately about self-development, but it's about service and mission. You see, he says, come follow me, and I will do what? I will make you fishers of men, or as the modern translation here says, it, I will cause you to fish for people. You see, Jesus is going somewhere, and he requires his disciples to come along with him. And thankfully, it's not to a classroom of endless lectures. You know, Jesus is not calling you to master the theoretical and the abstract, to become obtuse. What he says is when he calls you is, I have an agenda, and I have a plan, and you're part of that. And now you're part of my agenda. My agenda is yours. We're to fish for people. Discipleship is all about mission. Now, hear this. Jesus may not cause you to leave your career, but don't confuse vocation with occupation. And here's what I mean. Your vocation is what Christ calls you to. Your primary calling, your vocation, is to be a Christ follower. He is your king. He is your everything. His rule, his authority, his agenda. That's your vocation. Your occupation is just what you happen to do, whether it be a doctor or an engineer or a teacher, a pastor. It doesn't matter. You first and foremost are not called to be an engineer or a doctor or a teacher or whatever else. You're called to be His, a Christ follower. It's His priority. And you know, I'm not sure where, where we kind of got this mixed up in the history of the church. Somehow, sometime along the line, we got the idea that you could follow Jesus and not be on mission. That you can follow Jesus and you're saved one day and you bide your time until that day comes, and you just kind of go about life. No. It's very clear. You're saved for mission. You're saved to be about. And Jesus doesn't come and say, I'm looking for a few good men. You up to the challenge? You women, you want to be a Marine? Follow me. The rest of you schlumps, just don't mess it up too badly. He doesn't do that. Everyone who is called by the king is called to submit to his authority and to be part of his agenda in the world. And the trick is to figure out how he's calling you to live that out where you are. To me, it's fascinating that these first disciples were not religious professionals. He didn't call the seminary students. He didn't go to the temple and call some priest to begin with. He called fishermen. And why that's good news is because Jesus' disciples are not necessarily those who have, quote, unquote, whatever you think the right preparation is. He can use you with your life experiences, your education, your experience for His purpose. However, His command shatters the everyday comfortableness of our worlds. 
You can say it this way, when you're hooked by Jesus, your whole life and purpose is transformed. I love that Brian Arthur's with us this morning. Those of you who know the Arthurs know, Brian, great job at Wells Fargo. Legacy First Union, I think you were, Brian. Great job. People think he's nuts. What are you, what are you doing leaving a great job and all these benefits, selling, downsizing your home, selling it to go to Honduras? To do what? To minister to some poor kids? To share this thing called the good news? What are you thinking? It's because Brian and Susan follow the voice of their king. Sometimes he does call you out of what you're doing, your occupation, and lines your vocation up in a different way. I love the fact that some of our elders are literally praying about, Lord, Make it clear, because I'm structuring my entire life right now so that I can be freed from my job at some point to do whatever you want me to do. And they have ideas on it, and they're just waiting for the Lord, make it clear. Because you don't retire from your calling. You may retire from your occupation, but you never retire from your vocation. I pray for our young people. And I regularly pray that out of Stonebridge directly, we would see men and women grow up and be called by God into full-time Christian service vocationally, entering the mission field, entering the ministry of being a pastor, entering the parachurch ministry, but being raised up, hearing, my king's voice is my authority, and I will follow him wherever I go. Two of our young kids came up to me after the first hour, a young lady who said, I know God's calling me into missions. I just don't know where yet. And I am so thankful. A young man who's been called into ministry, and he's scared to death to tell his dad because he thinks his dad's going to reject it and give him a hard time because his dad has other plans. And let me use that to talk to you parents for a minute. If you look at this passage Look at verse 20 again. It's not going to be up here, but in your Bible, you'll see verse 20 reads, without delay, so this is talking about James and John, the sons of Zebedee, without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. You realize, there's, there's a bit of pain in this passage, because Zebedee's life changed too. Peter's and Andrew's, James and John's lives radically changed, but Zebedee's life changed and can you imagine the astonishment of the father when his two sons, part of the family business, leave the family in industry? He's in the boat with the hired men. He has to say goodbye to his sons, who aren't just sons. They're trusted partners in his business, loyal workers, his daily companions. Some of you have adult children, and they're your daily companions. That's a wonderful thing. But here's the thing. Parents of children whose children sense a call to missions should not balk if the family business or family priorities take second place to God's business or God's priorities. Parents who have encouraged their children all their lives to follow Christ, to listen to His voice, should not cry foul when their son or daughter puts all of life on the altar of sacrifice to serve the call of their king. 
Zebedee had to adjust. And I bet he prayed daily for his sons as he missed them. You know, parents, uh, yeah, hear me in this. I've got four young daughters. And sometimes it scares me to death. How might God call them? Where might He call them? But that's between them and their king. You know, parents, we may sigh. We may wonder about practicalities. We may worry over financial security and stability. And safety is a big thing. But then, here's what we do. You got all that stuff in faith. You pray for, support, and you give your child to God again as you did when they were young. You know, when we have a baptism, you dedicate your child to the Lord, saying, this child is yours. And so one day, when your child, if they say, I'm going into full-time Christian service, it may scare you to death, you give them up to the Lord again. He loves them even more than you do. And they have to follow their king's voice even more than their father's voice, even more than their mother's voice, because he died for them. And it's his mission, his agenda. Wonderful old commentary. Cranfield says it this way. In this section, we have the first of a series of incidents that illustrate the authority of Jesus. His word lays hold on men's lives and asserts his right to their wholehearted and total allegiance, a right that takes priority even over the claims of kinship, over the claims of success, over the claims of anything else, because he's the king. As we wrap up, let me just ask you a few questions that you can talk about in your small group or otherwise, ask yourself these things. What does Christ expect me to leave behind and follow Him? What sacrifice of personal achievement, wealth, or position does Christ ask me to make? What prevents me from following Jesus immediately and wholeheartedly today? You know, I'm really good at saying, Jesus, in in three years, (laughs) in three years, immediately, wholeheartedly following wherever He leads, however He calls. And what must I do to eliminate these hindrances from my life? May we follow our King's voice wherever He leads and submit to His authority no matter what even when the world says, you are nuts. It's because it's His authority, His agenda, and His plan.